Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. The tsunami of sexual harassment and assault allegations continues and is causing cultural and political reflection. Today, we continue our ongoing discussion of politics, partisanship, and the Me Too movement. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode, everybody. We hope you got a chance to check out our gift guide. There's really no reason to do this except for I just really like gift guides. <laughs> <laughs> I just love sure. I just love product recommendations. It just it touches the deepest uh, part of my resource Sherpa heart. So we did a, re- a gift guide on our blog, and you should go check it out. We also hope that you have checked out the Nuance Life. We are so grateful for all of your support and the feedback that we've gotten so far. And we're looking forward to putting out new episodes on Wednesdays. So you'll have Pantsuit Politics Tuesday and Friday and the Nuance Life on Wednesdays. 
Also, we wanted to wish a very special happy birthday to one of our loyalist listeners, Martha, who we are recording on Monday, and she is celebrating her 60th birthday. So happy day late belated birthday, Martha, as you're listening on Tuesday. It just seemed like a big deal. And that was worth a, a public birthday shout out. So first up, Congress is back to work. I don't. I mean, back to work implies they were working, which I'm not. I mean, I guess they're working. They show up. They're in session. Know, they're in. There we go. There we. There we go. They're in session, and they have a long list. So, first up, tax reform. The Senate's turn. The pa- the House has passed their version. Now the Senate must pass their version. They are not going to be the same version. Needless to say. They have a lot of people within the Republican Party with concerns about the deficit. And it's basically um, what's going to hurt us more, (laughs) not doing anything or passing this tax reform bill, which is a stinker. It's a stinker. That's what I'm going to call it. We'll see what they do. Uh, I was reading the Politico's playbook this morning and the sort of the wisdom in Washington right now is that they don't do it this week because they have like 12 legislative days left before the end of the year. Like if they don't get it done this week, it's going to get pushed to next year. They also need to avoid a, avoid a government shutdown and fund the government. We'll see how that goes. That's important. It's important. Um, not sure how that's going to work. Then they're also this... Tied up with the conversation about funding the government is DACA, which was the Obama program to allow um, undocumented immigrants who came here as children to stay. It's due to expire. And the Democrats are saying we're not going to participate in any budget unless DACA is safe. Of course, Republicans don't feel the same way. So, I mean, it's just it's a lot, guys. I'm I'm. I'm sending you positive and efficient, uh, productive thoughts, but I'm just going to be honest. I'm not hopeful. The worst thing, I think, about the fact that Congress has come into a pattern of waiting until the last minute to do any of these things is that the process can't be as open and transparent as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And you end up shoving lots of disparate things together just to get something done because the leverage points are higher. And that's it's just no way to run the store, as they say just, in Kentucky. I just think that they, when the Tea Party faction, Freedom Caucus faction of the Republican Party made shutting down the government like, a th- I mean, because used to, they just funded the government. Everybody just, it was not even an item on the list, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody just was like, okay, let's do this. It's time to do this this time of year. And they made it a thing. They made it a bargaining chip and something else we get to fight over. And I wonder if they regret that now. I think that there are lots of things from the past 10 years that are regrettable. And I don't know how we start to correct course, but we need to be figuring that out. Mm. Well, lots of things happen in the world besides our dysfunctional Congress. Beth, do you want to tell us about the attack in Egypt? Yes. This is the deadliest attack in modern Egypt's history. 
Over the weekend, more than 300 people were killed and more than 100 were injured by terrorists at a mosque in the North Sinai Peninsula, which we had just been talking about because one of the positive things in the Senate tax bill is a provision to provide a tax break for military service in in the Sinai Peninsula. Right now, we have service members there, but our Department of Defense has not classified it as a war zone, and so they don't get a tax break. So it was, it was strange to have just been talking about that and then to have this terrible news this week. A gunman drove to the mosque. No, many gunmen drove to the mosque in off-road vehicles, bombed the mosque, and then started opening fire on Sufi Muslims during their worship service. They set parked cars on fire to block off access to the mosque. And this area has had a long history of conflict and ISIS affiliate has taken hold there. We're not positive that this was ISIS, but that seems to be the the thought right now. It's really hard to get good information in this area. Western journalists just can't get into the Sinai Peninsula. And the information that we receive is filtered by the government in Egypt. So it's just, it's a really difficult situation to take hold of. We'll put some links in the show notes for you to investigate this more. One link that I really want to commend to you is from The Atlantic, and it's about the discussion of the particular type of Muslim worship happening in this mosque. There um, has, I have heard it described in the news lately, um, Sufis, Sufi Muslims as more mystical than other forms of Islam. And this Atlantic writer makes the point that that's, that's not exactly accurate. And Sufi Muslims are hardly homogenous. There are some strains of Sufi um, Muslims that don't consider themselves Sufi. They also aren't that different from other Muslims. And so it's important not to romanticize this too much. Um, The writer said, I thought this was worth reading. These are far from mere semantic discussions. They inevitably shape the subtext of so many conversations around Islam and politics. Western governments are susceptible to exoticizing Sufis and elevating them as the better, peaceful Muslims. But to see one group of Muslims as better means seeing other Muslims as problems to be solved. Westerners, most of whom have heard of Rumi's poetry, but have little idea who the Mahdi is, will naturally prefer this idea of pacifist, apparently apolitical Muslims, only to find out that most Muslims are just, well, Muslims. In this respect, the mosque that Islamist militants so brutally attacked in Egypt was something more than a Sufi mosque. It was simply a mosque. Well, and here's the thing. I... (sighs) This is, I mean, I understand why it's being called a terrorist attack, but it sounds like a dang military attack. If they're blocking access and coming fully armed, I mean, it sounds very well organized and a little bit, I mean, I guess I just start to think of terrorist attacks as sort of, I mean, not that September 11th wasn't coordinated, but you know what I mean? Like, it just seems like a military attack. Right. I think this region is incredibly complex, and I think that this is what makes the president's the United States president's response so problematic because his instinct was to talk about the wall and the the travel ban. What? What does that have to do with anything? And that's my question, right? Because it sort of furthers the idea that his view of the world is scary Muslims, right? Yeah. And safe Westerners. And I think that The reality here is so much more complicated than that. And we talked in the last episode about how Africa especially is just going to be increasingly important. And we must have a deeper understanding of these issues than 
Muslims bad, everyone else good. That that's just not the world that we're living in, and I, I we he needs to do better than that. Well, speaking of interesting choices, our president are making and his need to do better. There is a battle brewing over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, I told Beth before the show started this whole this whole situation is very uh, Marbury versus Madison, which is a instrumental Supreme Court decision in which Thomas Jefferson. And John Adams were sort of using appointments to get at each other, which seems to be what's happening here. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created um, after the global financial crisis. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was a big proponent. I think she helped write the legislation, I'm pretty sure. Um, And it was to be this independent agency that helped regulate the financial system. And... For some reason, we're not exactly sure why the current head stepped down before his appointment was due to expire. And so the creation in the create the legislating create the legislation creating the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it was said that if should the director leave, then the deputy director automatically becomes um, the interim head until the president can appoint a new director. So the deputy director currently is a career diplomat named Leandra English. So she was supposed to become its temporary chief. Well, Donald Trump decided to appoint Mick Mulvaney, who is he already has a job. He already has a job. He has a thing. He is the head of the budget, right? Budget. Yep. OMB. Budget director. OMB. Okay. So, and also interesting choices. He hates and has spoken out repeatedly against the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So, you know, sort of like with the he calls it a sad, sick joke and it supports legislation to eliminate it. So a little like similar situation to the Environmental Protection Agency. Do we really want people running federal agencies who hate them and want to see them destroyed? I would argue no. But what do I know? So she so he he appointed Mulvaney, the president. And so now she is suing, saying, you can't do this. This is a violation of the law. Really interesting kind of debate about who is going to be running this agency. I mean, like these people are showing up to the career diplomats or diplomats, the career bureaucrats in the bureau are showing up today and like not really know who their boss is. So I think she filed for a emergency um, hold on the appointment to say, okay, who's actually in charge? They're pointing to another law to say that they have the authority to appoint whoever. I don't I mean, I don't understand the argument when the legislation that sets up the bureau clearly set, states that the temporary director is the deputy director. But we'll see what the courts say. You know, I was thinking a lot over the Thanksgiving holiday about this president and norms and the rule of law. You and I were texting about some of his tweets over the Thanksgiving holiday. I cannot even talk about that. This is the kind of situation where I I wish my fantasy is that a governing majority of legislators come together and go to the president and say, you know what? We have ridden shotgun on this adventure for long enough. (laughs) (laughs) Your learning curve is over. Word. We understand that impeachment and the 25th Amendment are very serious things, and we aren't ready to go there yet. But we want you to start understanding that the people who wrote the Constitution started with us, Mm. and we have some power. And if you don't start acting like a president 
and we can't come to some agreements about things like who's going to run this agency, we're going to open an ethics investigation into the transfer of wealth from taxpayers to Trump properties because of all these little golf excursions that you're taking. And we aren't going to appear on television without one of our signature charts listing the cost of every one of those vacations and comparing the time you spend playing golf to your favorite President Obama. Mm. We're going to do this. We're going to meet you in the court of public opinion where you feel like you've been the only player. It is going to feel like we have taken up residence in your colon and we're going <laughs> to build that residence on a scale befitting a Trump property, because that is what the balance of powers requires of us at this moment. Oh I just gosh. wish we could get some people motivated to talk some sense into him. And here's the thing. Okay. I appreciate everything you just said. And I think appealing to their constitutional better angels is admirable. Let me take a more craven and arguably probably more successful approach with this particular group of legislators. Every time he gets on Twitter, like he did today or yesterday, and say, the Senate Republicans need to get this done, do you understand what he is doing to you? He is making you the bad guy. He is making you the problem. He can't blame Hillary anymore, and he got bored with the press, and now it's you, and he is fully prepared to throw every single one of you under the bus and has already done that repeatedly. Look at the writing on the wall. Like, just forget that your constitutional better angels. Talk to your craven political egos and understand that he is playing you. He is playing you. He is a hot mess. He is a hot mess as a president. Not to, like, I was listening to or reading something that they were just basically like, you know, if even if they get tax reform, what comes next? Like, he doesn't even know what he wants to do next. And you're supposed to spend months communicating and building this up. But he doesn't do that because he's just ready to throw you under the bus every time he screws up, which, as we've all picked up by now, is pretty often. So, you know, just read the writing on the wall. How about that? That would work, too. And have I mean, just to bring it back around to my more lofty (laughs) (laughs) approach. Have some sense of where we are in history, Shoot. because a decision like a court, the opinion that will be written about who gets to appoint the head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau will have long lasting today unforeseeable consequences. Mm-hmm. That is not the kind of fight that we want the judiciary to have to weigh in on. Part of the reason the judiciary has become so important that we justify to ourselves the election of Donald Trump mm-hmm. is because the judiciary has had to make calls like this when the legislative branch has abdicated its responsibility. And that's the thing. It's like Mitch McConnell, meet me at the mic, dude. Like your long game sucks. I think you thought the long game was making sure that you get to point people in the courts and you could just trust them to to exert the power you want them to. But like, is that really you want to abdicate all your power? to another branch of government? Like, is that how you're protecting the institution of the Senate is by saying, well, all that matters is that we get the people in the judiciary we want. Like, that's what you want United States senators to do, only do. The only thing, the most important thing I've ever done is Merrick Garland, is prevent the appointment of Merrick Garland. Like, I can't believe that this is really, ugh. Also, can I just, on a Merrick Garlic side note, can I exercise a small bit of righteous fury I had, which will probably come up in our main discussion about Me Too. 
So I had not fully internalized the fact that Clarence Thomas was appointed to replace Thurgood Marshall. <laughs> like, yeah. I, oh, man, I knew that somewhere in my brain, but I guess I had not remembered it since this whole it's our seat Merrick Garland situation. We get to appoint the the replacement for Antonin Scalia and just fully realizing that that is who replaced Thurgood Marshall makes me so angry. I can barely put it into words. That's all. I just need to get that off my chest. Well, let's talk about net neutrality for a second. Oh, yeah, that's not going to make me angry at all. That's going to be a great. That's going to be a great other subject. I had a really hard time putting together the outline for today's episode because there's so much to talk about right now. And there's so much that requires a lot of context. And so I'm going to try to quickly run us through a mini primer on net neutrality. The FCC right now, and and think about the FCC, that's the Federal Communications Commission. They exist to regulate phone carriers and all of our telecommunications devices. They're considering rolling back Obama-era regulations that classify Internet service as a communication service that's subject to their jurisdiction instead of an information service, which would be under the Federal Trade Commission. Okay, if the Internet is this giant network that connects all of our computers and devices to each other, that network exists in layers. And when we're talking about net neutrality, we're thinking about the last layer, this last mile infrastructure that gets information into my house or onto my device. To get that last mile infrastructure, we use internet service providers or ISPs. These tend to be phone and cable companies, many of which have had monopolies on our communications for a very long time. According to Tom Wheeler, who's at the Brookings Institute, four companies in the United States provide 75% of broadband services. So most Americans do not have a choice in their internet service provider. And that's really important. I want to put a pin in that and come back to it. Now, hang with me as we get a little technical here. And I have had to think about this a lot to try to get my brain around it, because this is very much not the type of intelligence that I naturally have. <laughs> this is, I would do something very different with my life if I understood these things better, but I'm going to try. So when we send data over the internet, it goes in all these little ones and zeros, right? And that data gets transmitted in packets. It's groupings of information that you need to, you need to section it off in these packets so that you can transmit the information faster. And so a packet of data might bring a piece of an email or a text message or part of a video to you. In its purest sense, the concept of net neutrality is that all of those packets should be treated equally. That internet service providers should never be able to prioritize some of those packets, meaning sending them faster than others. And they shouldn't be able to block any of those packets to keep you from accessing certain content. So why does that matter? If you think about what the incentives of internet service providers might be. Many of them are incumbent local exchange carriers, meaning they have had a monopoly on your communications in a certain area for decades. Okay, if I'm providing broadband service and phone service, I might at least in the short term have an incentive to block applications like Skype that compete with my phone service that I'm offering. 
And there are discussions about fast and slow lanes based on pricing. So maybe I do a deal with Hulu to stream it faster than Netflix. And suddenly a whole region of the United States is preferring Hulu over Netflix because of this deal that Hulu and the local exchange carrier have struck. And that might not sound like a big deal because we're just talking about speed, but studies show that speed is an enormous and almost insurmountable competitive advantage. Once you have access to something at a faster rate, you as a consumer find the slower rate unbearable. So the Obama administration decided to deal with this whole question of what internet service providers can do by classifying broadband services as common carrier services under Title II, which gives the FCC authority to regulate them accordingly. There are arguments about whether that was a good idea or not. In some senses, it could get just outright ridiculous because Title II was written before most Americans had television in their homes. Like, Title II is not meant to deal with the internet. So the Obama administration sort of took the parts that worked and left the parts that didn't work alone. And that's how they finagled this. Um, there are fees down the line that will take place if, if we continue to think of the internet and broadband access as common carrier. But overall, that is the way that the Obama administration saw fit to accomplish preserving net neutrality. A number of bills have come to Congress about this and not passed. So what's the other side of it? The Trump administration wants to roll this back and say that broadband is not a common carrier service. It's an information service that the Federal Trade Commission, not the FCC, should deal with industry shenanigans, that you should look at things like that under antitrust law. The arguments in general against what the Obama administration did against net neutrality are that you're stifling innovation, that you're reducing investment in broadband because the carriers can't make more money off of it. To be fair, the data on this is really debatable. And that some prioritization of these information packets makes the internet work more efficiently. And so here's an example of that. Low latency data exchange. So latency, we're talking about delay. You want your text messages to go fast, right? You want online video games to be delivered fast because your action here impacts what somebody else over there is going to do next. That's different than things like Netflix, which can be cached and buffered. So I can go ahead and start watching my Netflix or YouTube video without the whole thing loading right away. And it can keep loading as I'm watching, right? So I don't need that to go as fast. So if you have some prioritization just based on what the needs of the content are, you can theoretically administer a network more efficiently. So those are the kinds of, those are the two sides. What I'm not talking about, and Sarah, I'm imagining that you're going to go there, is that when you start prioritizing packets, you very quickly foresee a world where content is being manipulated and controlled. Okay. So I would like to zoom way, way, way far out from the ones and the zeros and the speed. Okay. So the first thing is you know what's bad for innovation and investment when this changes with every president. Yes. So Congress, Amen. hi, Congress, meet me at the mic. Um, 
neither party has good solutions here because the law is massively outdated. You guys are arguably dropping the mic on, not dropping the mic, dropping the responsibility. I don't know what the metaphor I want. You're not doing a good job on anything related to the internet or technology, our security, our privacy. Um, you're just, you're not doing anything, which means you're definitely not doing enough. So maybe you could get off your butts and worry a little bit less about tax reform and deal with this massive and growing sector of our economy and everyday lives and figure out a solution. Okay, that's the first thing. Uh, so I don't think this is a good thing for the presidents to be battling back and forth about. I think it needs to be more permanent, um, more well-suited to our current world. The second thing is, you know, I think at the core of this debate is what is the Internet? Is the Internet a service or is the Internet a utility? Because if it, I think that so for so long we thought of it as a service, and so this is a very industry-focused conversation. First of all, I'm not worried about innovation and investment and the Internet with love. I'm just not. Um, if there's money to be made, I mean, Jeff Bezos is now worth $100 billion, and he's doing just fine and expanding all the time into content creation and all manners of things. I'm sure that he will, I, I would foresee a future in which Amazon is getting involved in um, running the cable and providing internet services. So, I mean, I think that we for too long have thought about it as a service. It is not a service. It is a utility at this point to succeed in our current world, economy, country. It needs to be not dominated by a couple carriers but be provided like a public service utility. That is my personal opinion and philosophy. <laughs> I just, I don't buy anything that says, you know, I mean, I feel like we're, we're electricity changed our world almost dramatically, as dramatically as the internet. And we decided, oh no, we've got this utility monopoly. We're going to break it up. It's not a service anymore. It's a utility. Everybody needs electricity. Let's break it up and provide it as a public service and move forward from there. And I think that's what needs to happen with the internet. I, th I I don't know what needs to happen with the internet, to be honest with you. But but what I do want to point out as someone who typically defaults to market-based solutions is that the market does not work to fully regulate this sector because the barriers to entry are too high. Right. Even with phones, when we tried to introduce competitive local exchange carriers, those those companies struggle mightily mm -hmm. to compete with the incumbents because Spectrum is a finite resource. Right. And so I think it is foolish and misleading to talk about this in sort of pure uh, market libertarian terms because you can't just open another broadband provider. It can't be done. Yeah. And so I think that there is a really good argument for it becoming a utility. I'm 100% on board always with the legislature operating instead of Doing the executive branch. Absolutely. The <laughs> one thing I want to say about that, though, is that legislation does tend to be more permanent in a way that is good for spurring investment. What I think we need to figure out is how can we maintain some ability to innovate in that legislation because what we understand the internet to be is changing all the time. Legislation is not iterative, usually, and we need to figure that out. 
And that might just mean that Congress just keeps coming back to the page, right? And reexamining. And Congress could certainly do that. It just doesn't do it well right now. I mean, if you give an agency a certain amount of power, I mean, I think, I know people don't like the bureaucracy, but that's sort of what the bureaucracy's job is. Like they, we sit at the foundation, you guys shift and adapt as the situation changes, and we set up processes to make that fair and democratic. And, you know, if you had the right agency structure around this, you could adapt to a changing environment to a certain extent. And I just think that, you know, look, I don't want packages. Let me be abundantly clear on that. Like, I know everybody saw that tweet that went around with Portugal's um, Internet packages and how they're how you pay more for video and then you pay more for video messaging. And I don't want to do that. I definitely don't want to do that. This will cost us all more money. They will figure out a way to make money off speeding up and slowing down some people's content. But like, also, everybody take a breath and look at the bigger picture. What do you want the internet to look like? It is massively important to our lives every day. Do you want it, like, just take a breath and remember the the most important question always is not, is it going to cost me more money? Like, do you want whole sections of the country, voting sections of the country, to be shut off from our ever-changing technology and economy, like just shut out and shut off, how do you think that would exercise itself in voting for the next president or the next Congress? Like, let's not do this, guys. Like, this is a bad idea. And at the same time, I think these are really hard questions because as the Internet becomes so pervasive, it is already there and will be even more so. I don't think that the wild, wild west of the Internet is serving us very well right now. Nope. We're going to talk about that on The Nuance Life. Get excited, y'all. And there are some really important questions to ask, not just in the efficiency. It makes total sense to me that you would want a network administrator not, not based on competition or control, but just on efficiency to be able to say, hey, this all works better if we do it this way, right? Yeah. That makes sense to me. I think there are some shades of gray to be had here. And I am not I am not a person who thinks any control over the Internet is a bad thing. I I think we have gone way too far on too the far. other end of the too spectrum. Too far. Me too. I used to be like, no, leave it open. Now I'm like, uh-uh, rain that dish in. And, and so there's a question in my mind, if it becomes a utility, then we start to get into some really difficult First Amendment questions. So I don't think any of this is easy or straightforward, and I do think it requires an open debate where we all kind of come to the table with more open minds than we've had about this. Because right now, in social media circles, it is sacrilege to suggest that anything other than complete net neutrality is a good idea. I don't think that's helpful. I also think it's not helpful to just flip the switch as the Trump administration seems to want to do. Because that's different than what President Obama did. I do think there's a role for the Federal Trade Commission here because there are serious questions of monopoly going on. So, you know, these are hard issues. Oh, I'm sure Congress is up for the job. Sorry, I'm being cynical about Congress a lot lately. I just can't help myself. Well, we have some Congress members to compliment. Yeah, let's follow them because I do think they do seem to maybe – this is a good transition to our continuing Me Too conversation in the main segment because I do think they're – Um, They do seem to at least be trying to address at least their own massive sexual harassment problems. So I'll start. I need to apologize. I should have complimented this congressperson several weeks ago 
But Representative Barbara Comstock, who's a Virginia Republican, has been part leading the way and part of the bipartisan effort to introduce sexual harassment legislation to change the process, the current process under which someone would raise sexual harassment um, claims against a member of Congress. And she's doing a great job. She's been a great advocate. And I really hope this legislation um, is passed. And I wanted to compliment Representative Kathleen Rice. She is the only House Democrat to call for Conyers' resignation. And I, I'm really less interested in her calling for his resignation and more interested in what she said in that context, which was that House ethics investigations don't feel like real accountability and don't meet the challenge of this moment. And I thought that it was well said. And I thought that her passion about it gave voice to what a lot of women are feeling right now. Agreed. Agreed. So, Beth, I spent this weekend doing some house projects, and I listened to, like, at least three Rebecca Traster interviews about the Me Too movement, and it had me thinking all the thoughts, because there seems to be um, a point at now which we have moved past, I hope we have, I don't think we've completely moved past calling out people currently in power. I I think that's going to still keep going, but... There seems to be moments of reflection. So the Washington Post did a really good article with the female members of Congress and who were in Congress during Anita Hill's hearing and Anita Hill herself, particularly about Joe Biden, who was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, and his complete mishandling of the situation. There's also been um, increasing conversations about Bill Clinton. There was a really great New York Times article called, I believe, Juanita Broderick. There, Matt Iglesias wrote a piece saying that Bill Clinton should have resigned. Kristen Gillibrand has talked about how Bill Clinton should have resigned over the Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, <clears throat> and so just all these conversations reflecting on where we are in our current climate um, got me thinking about particularly these two figures within the Democratic Party I had said previously that I think Bill Clinton should come clean. I do. I think Bill Clinton's legacy would be served by coming forward and saying, I was wrong. This is where I screwed up. I should not have done this. And just being forthright. And But I, an, an argument I've made previously that I wanted to see what you thought about, because I know you have some strong feelings about Bill Clinton, is... Um, Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. 
For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up and I just kind of was spinning out and I stopped and I closed my eyes and I pictured my last therapist who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues and I sort of channeled his energy and put my feet on the ground and thought this is just how time feels now and there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high quality vacation essentials like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. I had said this before and I thought, oh man, is this a bad sexist argument? But then Rebecca Tracer made it and seeing as she is my favorite feminist, I felt like, okay, so maybe this isn't just me being blinded by my previous history with the Clintons. So she said, she was just talking about how she thinks Hillary Clinton is super fascinating because she's this bridge between total different understandings of femininity and women and feminism from like the 50s and her mom was like a total stay-at-home mom into obviously like the first first lady with a sort of a career and a job and all these things and then she so they were talking about Bill Clinton and not just that you know Monica Lewinsky was insistent that it was a consensual relationship but that the problem wasn't that it was non-consensual the problem is that it was a massive abuse of his power to have sex with an intern um, who he exhibited so much. I mean, he was the president of the United States. Anybody would feel intimidated. But to be an intern in the White House and to exert that power, hugely problematic. And she said, 
uh, Rebecca Tracer said to Ezra Klein, like, well, what's interesting is I don't often think about the fact that Bill Clinton was also bridging this gap and a total shift um, in the way we thought about presidents, because for better or for worse, our presidential history is full up with men who abused that power in sexual situations from Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings all the way through apparently George H.W. Bush grabbing people every chance he got. I mean, you're talking about there are stories about JFK having an intern. I think she was an intern or a staffer service perform oral sex on another member in front of him in the pool in the White House. I mean, this is so her thing was like, you know, the ground shifted under Bill Clinton's feet where this is what everybody did and they all the presidents did it and it was fine. It's cool. We all were like under this agreement, like sh- it was like a shush shush thing to absolutely not. Everything's fair game politically. And like, it, I don't think that's an excuse at all. Um, it was a massive abuse of power. But like, I think that's a very interesting thing to think about is like what what happens in these conversations with people when you're looking back on someone's um, history. And I think this could be true when you talk about artists, too. Now, not Woody Allen, because gross, but, you know, in other situations, like if the world was a certain way and they acted a certain way and then the world changed, what do we do with these figures, basically? I think these are really hard questions, and I felt a lot of the same kind of pulls when I was watching Nancy Pelosi struggle through her interview with Chuck Todd on Meet the Press this weekend. And she has been widely criticized for that appearance, which was painful to watch. I mean, Chad and I both sat and looked at each other and said, like, this is so uncomfortable to watch. So I didn't watch it. Tell me what she did. She was very... she, She kept saying that there is a zero tolerance policy now around harassment. At the same time, she was quite defensive of John Conyers and talked about the importance of due process, did not say that she would ask him to step down from the Judiciary Committee, which he, he has since, at least temporarily. Vox wrote a piece almost immediately called Nancy Pelosi is that woman about how the way she responded to Chuck Todd's questions so um, shiftily, and, and I, that word is, has a more negative connotation than I mean, but it's the only thing that's coming to mind for me. The way that she responded is why so many women don't report what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. Because you can't even count on other women to be sympathetic and supportive in the way that you need in the moment. And I felt such a mixture of things watching Nancy Pelosi because she, too, as much or perhaps more than Hillary Clinton, has lived through this shift. Yeah. And who knows what she personally has experienced, both in terms of victimization and and sort of being complicit, right? Part of what's so painful about all these stories coming out is I think all of us have to reckon with women too. Mm-hmm. Where have I contributed to the patriarchy that our entire structure is built on? And we yeah. have, I have, I know I have, I've had moments, especially in my career of seriously propping up men And I'm grateful that in some of those moments, other women have pointed that out to me so I could at least make a conscious decision about it. But these are really difficult 
awful questions to struggle through. And I think that something I appreciate in Rebecca Traster's analysis and in her writing, she she grapples with mm-hmm. the difficulty of it instead of just kind of sitting as judge and jury. I don't think that's what this moment calls for. The, no. the judge and jury thing. I am I am so much less interested in what happens to Al Franken than in what we do with this whole conversation. I'm so right. much less interested in what happens to any of these men, honestly, and more interested in what does this mean for our understanding of gender relations? What does this mean for our understanding of sexuality? I appreciated I, I thought this piece was overstated. But I appreciated the New York Times opinion piece on male sexuality that ran this weekend. It it got a lot of play because it said that basically men, and it was written by a man, but it said basically men left to their own devices will kill their fathers and rape their mothers because the male (laughs) sexual drive is that powerful. Good Lord. God save me. I live in a house with four men. That's too much. But (sighs) here's here's a piece of it that I thought was right on. He said, the men I know don't actively discuss changing sexual norms. We gossip and surmise who is a criminal and who isn't. Which of the creeps whom we know are out there will fall this week? Beyond the gossip, there is a fog of the past that is better not to penetrate. Aside from the sorts of clear criminal acts that have always been wrong, changing changing social norms and the imprecision of memory are dark hallways to navigate. Be careful when you go down them. You might not like what you find. So much easier to turn aside. Professionally, too. I have seen just how profoundly men don't want to talk about their own gendered nature. In the spring, I published a male take on the fluctuations of gender and power in advanced economies. I was interviewed over 70 times by reporters from all over the world, but only three of them were men. Men just aren't interested. They don't know where to start. I'm working on a podcast on modern fatherhood dealing with issues like pornography and sex after childbirth. Very often when I interview men, it is the first time they have ever discussed intimate questions seriously with another man. And that, Mm. I think, gets to the conversation we need to be having right now. Yeah, and here's the thing. So last night, a dear couple friend of ours came over and we started talking about Me Too, and he was just like, tell me what I need to do. Like, he just wanted this list. Like, tell me, like, how to be a boss and what should I do? And, like, it, it, my list was sort of never good enough. I don't know why I even went down this road. I should have just been like, it's not my job to tell you what to do. <laughs> then my stepfather came over, and this conversation, it got very, very heated. And, you know, and kind of what I wanted to say was, like, there's not going to be a solution here. And they were saying this, too. Like, change is slow. And but they definitely there was a moment where they were like, we're white guys and nothing we say is ever going to be good enough. And I just kind of want to say, like, look, if you are thinking deeply about the Me Too movement and feminism and patriarchy and you don't answer often, I don't know, then you're not trying hard enough. Honestly, Mm -hmm. like what we're doing right now is so hard. Like Tracer even at one point was like, I do this for a living and I find this painful. I think about these things for a living. This is what I've dedicated my life to, and I find this moment painful. So, you know, if you aren't bumping like that that sensation I love where you're just bumping up against something and you can't figure out what it is or how to get it out of your way in conversations regarding gender right now, then the only thing you can do is try a little harder because that's what we've got to do right now. Like if you if you I don't know what to do with Bill Clinton. I don't. I just don't know. 
I would like him to come clean. I don't think that's very likely. I don't know what to do with Joe Biden. I don't know what to do without Franken. Like, I think that the Democratic Party has done better, but could do much more. And I think that there, it's like there's so many struggles within this conversation. There's a struggle with the spectrum of behavior among men. There's a spe- there's a struggle with the spectrum of behavior among women. There's a struggle with the generational differences among women and how to approach this and how to talk about it. There is a struggle with what this means in our own lives, what this means on a global and political level. And like, it's really, really hard. And if you're not, you know, last night's conversation was, it was intense and it was hard. And I'm getting a teary even thinking about it, but like, I don't want to, because they felt attacked. I don't want the men in my life to feel attacked. But like, if we're not having conversations that are so difficult with the people we love, where we're just like, wherever, where people maybe are getting mad and people are getting upset. Like, I just think that that's going to have to happen. Like, we're not going to have polite conversations about gender and get anywhere. I'm sorry, you guys. Like, some people are going to cry. Some people are going to get their feelings hurt. Some people are going to feel attacked. Like, I just think that that's going to be a part of the calculus right now. Like, it's just we're at a very difficult moment with this conversation. And what I don't want us to do is decide it's just so hard and we want an easy answer so let's just move let's just move on or turn away or let it go. And I, I think the one of the most interesting things that she said about Bill Clinton is that we had this moment with Anita Hill where it was a cultural conversation, and then we elected Bill Clinton. And I had not thought about that that was the the year of the woman too. And he was supposed to and he is both things. That's what's so hard. Bill Clinton is a hot mess personally especially when he was elected. And it and it brings up huge, massive problems with regards to power and sexuality and harassment in the workplace. And at the same time, he was an advocate for women legislatively. And we got the Family and Medical Leave Act, which was a huge step forward for all of us. And we had a pro-choice advocate. I mean, it's just all this is true. And what do we do with that? But I do think that for better or for worse, the Clintons, being this bridge and being the complicated people they are put us in sort of it arrested our development, right? Not only in the ways that which we could not continue this conversation about sexual harassment because we had to protect Bill Clinton. And by we, I mean Democrats, but true of all of us in a way, or we had to attack Bill Clinton either way. You know what I mean? But also, you know, in the way that when she ran, we couldn't talk about this stuff because of him and she couldn't be the pure advocate Not that anybody's pure, but, you know, like they just it's like they arrested our development in so many ways. And look, nobody loves Hillary Clinton more than me, uh, more than I do. I mean, there are some people, but I love these people. I, I feel like I know them in ways that I probably don't. But I do love Bill and Hillary Clinton. And I do believe they have devoted their life to this country and to public service. And I believe that they are massively complicated, flawed human beings and that the legacy of their their time in public service is hugely complicated particularly with regards to gender and i just and when you kind of zoom out and see the impact of these two humans on this conversation on our you know development um as a culture with regards to men and women it's just it's almost mind blowing 
I think, in the impact of just two human beings. I think that's both true and part of the reason that we never make progress because we layer all this stuff on people that aren't up for it. If you think right now that that this is about the Clintons, about Donald Trump, about Roy Mm -hmm. Moore, about Al Franken, it is. And Mm -hmm. and then if you spend your time parsing out the relative sins of those people, we're just missing it. We're just missing it completely because it's about all of us. And it is so complicated. I was sitting here mulling over the question of, you know, tell me what to do. There are things about interpersonal gender dynamics that I struggle to articulate. Hmm. And I struggle to articulate them, particularly because I am always aware of not wanting the men in my life to feel attacked. So in the spirit of let's just put everything on the table, try not to feel attacked by what I'm about to say. We have wonderful men who listen to this podcast, and I count it a miracle that they do. There are so few places where you're going to hear women talking about net neutrality as a very poignant example, right? So I am so grateful for that. And many of those men correspond with us. And I am so grateful for that. I learn something. I enjoy it. It absolutely enriches what we do here. If you take on balance the aggregate of email that we get from men versus women, men write in a way that feels to me like it is intended to instruct Mm -hmm. and women write in a way that feels to me like an invitation Mm -hmm. to continue to sit beside one another and think about these issues. And I don't believe there's anything intentional about that. And if I were going to try to say, here's what you said that makes me feel this way, I don't know that if I can, that I can articulate it. And that starts the circle of, well, am I just being sensitive? Am I bringing my own baggage to what this stranger emailed me? Maybe, but that's how embedded these mm-hmm. gender dynamics are in our DNA. And I'm not blaming men for that any more than I'm blaming myself for reading into it. I'm just saying we got to expose all of that if we want to change it. And exposing that in systems that were built by and for men, every, every hierarchy in corporate America, in our government, everything reinforces the notion that power flows down. I don't think that's what women would build if we were riding on a blank slate. I just don't. And so... When I think about Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In and the whole idea of women have to fight our way through these structures, to me, a lot of these structures just aren't worth saving. And what we need now is to allow space for women to create. I don't want Bill Clinton. I don't want to have to take the package that is Bill Clinton to represent women. I want women to represent women. Word. I mean, so I'm like sitting here crying the whole time you're talking. I can't even really articulate why. At the end of every freaking Rebecca Traster article, I burst into tears when she's like, maybe we're the backlash. I just sat there and wept. It wasn't even like a nice soft trickle. It was open weeping. And because 
My friend Lori, friend of the pod, Lori Stark, posted a really great article. Um, the woman was like, basically, I'm going to stop gaslighting myself. Like, I I want to believe myself. And I think there's so much of this movement that just says, stop being in your own head. Believe yourself. And it looks to the men in your life, men who have loved you and still love you, and say, just believe me. Please, just believe me. And that's so hard to un- help somebody understand what it's like to be in not only doubting having people you love and people you trust doubt you but to doubt then to to take those voices and to put them in your own head and to start doubting yourself it's exhausting and it's frustrating and it's demoralizing and so when you have this cultural moment where everyone says, we believe you. not And it's not even that. It's not we believe you. It's that you are not alone in feeling this way. Like, it's just hard to put into words what that feels like. And so when I have this, you know, my righteous fury last night and they felt attacked, there's just a part of me that's like, I got to get this out. Like, I have 36 years and I don't even have terrible experiences that some women have of just feeling constantly undercut and constantly like, we don't believe you. You read the situation wrong. You're not basically my whole life. I felt like people just looked at me and said, you're not really being treated differently because you're a girl. And it's just not true. I was every single time. It's like, you know, my friend, I had a run in with a teacher at school and she was like, you know, my friend whose daughter just graduated from high school. She's like, they're always the kids are always right at that age. When they're in elementary school and they're like, this person doesn't like me or this person was being mean to me because, like, they're usually always right because they haven't learned to not trust themselves yet. You know, like, we haven't taught them don't trust your instincts, don't trust your emotions, don't trust your feelings, don't trust the voices in your head that say you're being treated unfairly in this situation. And let's like, I just feel like the lifetime of being a woman is constantly being told in a million different ways, don't trust yourself, you're wrong. You're wrong. That's not you're not right in this in this context. You were treated fairly. You misread the situation. And it's just this moment where you finally feel other women go, you know, like if you've had true consciousness raising where you sat in a group of women. I had a a night I'll never forget in college where we sat around uh, doing the vagina monologues and everybody shared their stories. And I think about when I saw Raising Miss President for the first time. Or when I became a women's studies minor, when you when you get it, and this is what they did in the 70s, when you sit with a group of women, which I think is what's sort of taking place on social media, and someone says, you're not crazy. You're just not crazy. This did happen to you. It happened to me, too. The power of that cannot be underestimated. But it is a truly painful experience. It is both painful and joyful to feel like you were not trusting yourself and people were not trusting you and then to someone to say you were right all along but it's painful to look back and see what was lost that whole time when you weren't trusting yourself and you were listening to the voices that were saying no you didn't read the situation correctly or whatever like it's just it hurts it's painful and you know I just don't want us to run from that too quickly and I don't I hope we won't I hope that we'll just we're just going to have to, as we say, lean into the suck. I think that's uh, the better takeaway from Cheryl Sandberg's <laughs> writings is you're just going to have we're going to have to lean in, y'all. We're just going to lean into the suck for a little while and feel that pain and feel the places where we lost out because people didn't believe us. And it's just so, so hard. 
Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. And so, you know, what do we want? I don't think it's to take anything away. It is, though, to say... Just in the simplest ways, our experience matters. Mm-hmm. We have to stop acting like periods are too gross to talk about. Word. We have to stop acting like childbirth is this horrific, scary thing that needs to be managed. We have to stop 
treating women like we did extracurricular support in corporations. Overall, we need to fundamentally examine our understanding of sexuality and attraction to each other. You know, I'm so obsessed with Esther Perel right now, and I apologize that I'm like name dropping her constantly, but she talked about in a podcast a couple of episodes ago that attraction plus an obstacle is the most powerful aphrodisiac on earth. Hmm. And that made so much sense to me. And that's why when you look at Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, you understand what happens there on both right. sides, right? And, yeah. you, and yeah. you understand why it's so confusing to think of a person who may have been, you know, completely consenting to what was happening as a victim. That's complicated. That is really hard to tease out. I don't think we have great conversations about attraction, period. I don't think mm -hmm. we understand anything other than the act of sex in our culture. I'm going to detour for a second, but do you remember the movie As Good As It Gets? Um, yeah, because that dog just won Best in Show this weekend. The same kind of breed. Sorry. I was just talking about that movie. I love that movie. And I love the scene where Helen Hunt and Greg Kinnear yeah. spend the night say together. Scene. It's so good. And so Greg Kinnear is a gay man who has been attacked horribly and is on this road trip to go ask his parents for money to help him out. And Helen Hunt is a waitress who is randomly on the road trip with him and Jack Nicholson. And the two of them spend the night together and he draws her. He tells her that she's why cavemen chiseled on walls. It's so beautiful. The next morning, Jack Nicholson storms in and looks at Greg Kinnear because he's in love with Helen Hunt. And he says, did you have sex with her? And she says, to hell with sex, we held each other. What I need, he gave me. And I think that example of the kind of affection and the kind of relationships we need from one another is so important. That is the only example of it that I can think of from popular culture. Mm. And I think we need more of that because... Our understanding of how we interact with one another, if it continues to be dominated by sex and now by sex as a, an instrument of power that has been far too long wielded to oppress women, that is so incomplete. And we never go anywhere from here if we stay in that framework. I totally agree. And I hope that this conversation does lead us to examine, re-examine the frameworks. You know, I always think about the example the um, the sister Joan on Oprah Super Soul Sunday said that we're just we're fighting every battle, trying to solve every problem with one hand tied behind our back. Because, like you said, the power structures were created by predominantly white men. Another thing I keep thinking about that Tracer said is she's like, we basically have, we know, we have a majority minority country. White men aren't the minority, but they're disproportionately represented in every place of power. And I guess I never really thought about it before because it's so in your head that everywhere you see is everything, everywhere you see is white men that you just kind of think, oh, yeah, there's more white men. But there aren't. There aren't that many white men, except in my house. It's, my house is full up of white men. But, you know, I think that that. Just shifting, like, what would the world look like? What would we do differently if there wasn't one group and one experience, not because it's a less than experience or a less than group, but because it is only one group? Like, what would it look like if 
things were crafted differently? What would it look like if the power structures and the legislative process and the legislators themselves represented a bigger, wider perspective? I mean, I think you could argue that Anita Hill happened. We got more female legislators. And it wasn't until we hit an even, I mean, it's it's not men leading the charge to change the sexual harassment process right now in Congress. It's women. What if they weren't there to begin with? There's this really great moment in the Washington Post article where the female Congress women at the time talk about storming the Senate and demanding that Joe Biden let Anita Hill testify. And they were blocked from entering the Senate lunchroom. And Barbara Mikulski, my absolute favorite, perhaps senator of all time. She's a force to be reckoned with. I miss her every day. And she says, you know, I was the only Democratic woman. And there was all this debate about, well, what should we do? And she was like, we're going to let them in. What do you mean? What are we going to do? We're going to let them in. And I think, well, what if Barbara Mikulski wasn't there? You know, like, so we know if if one woman's in the table, she says, let them into the room. And if there are, what, about 20 percent female representation now in Congress, they say we need to change the process of sexual harassment in Congress and stop using taxpayer money to pay out settlements. Okay, let's hope that passes. What happens if half the women there are Congress and Congress are women? What does that look like? Honestly, what does that I don't I can't even imagine what it would look like. I want to know, though. I really want to know. And not just because I'm a woman, but because I think the world will be a better place for my three sons. So I guess to go back to your friend's question of what of what should I do, I think as a first step, it is to ask that question and to listen more than you talk in these conversations. And I know that that's hard, but honestly, I'm having a very strong reaction right now to the flood of think pieces on me too from men, because mm. I think for one second, just hang back and Word. let your female colleagues take this. For one second, give somebody else the microphone. I was so discouraged by the New York Times back to back highlighting the Pod Save America guys and then Mm. Ben Shapiro. Mm. If the world doesn't at this moment need more women's voices, giving getting that kind of spotlight and more people of color and more gay and lesbian and transgender people like just for one second hang back a little bit. This doesn't mean forever. It doesn't mean you're bad. It doesn't mean you're unworthy. It means acknowledge that you have had center stage everywhere for a very long time. As a group, I understand that that does not mean that every single white man on earth has a life that is easy. Okay. So put that down, put down (laughs) that defensiveness But just listen for a while and just ask yourself, would my life be enhanced if other people drove sometimes? And I think the answer is yes. I really do. Agreed. All right. We're going to move on and talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. Beth, what is on your mind outside politics? Well, this is not totally outside of politics, but I have been fascinated by the reaction to our first couple of episodes of The Nuanced Life, 
our listener Erica first made this observation and several people jumped in um, that they find it interesting that I am a little bit more um, you do you progressive when it comes totally. to things non-political and that you are more traditional. And I, I 300 said that so to somebody. Yeah, I 300% said that to somebody. I said, if you just listen to The Nuance Life and because we don't tell which side of the aisle we're on, I bet you a hundred bucks you'd be like, oh, Beth's a Democrat, Sarah's a Republican. Because I am sort of more traditional and conservative in my approach to like life. Yeah. It's funny. Something that I've been thinking about with that, it's part of why I don't fit what most people think of as a Republican today or as a conservative today, because I genuinely mean all this stuff about personal choice and freedom. I genuinely do not think that I know best for you. (laughs) And so I am pretty non-attached for the most part. I'm very live and let live. I'm not a libertarian. I think the government has a role. But I do mean when I say I want people to actually like make their own decisions for their families. And I think that's something that I thought the Republican party stood for and it doesn't turns out not so much, not so much. And that's been disappointing for me, but I I just think it sheds some light on sort of our political differences. And I, and I do think that you as a Democrat often think like, I, I, I have a good solution here for everybody. Yeah. Right? everybody, <laughs> I did the research. <laughs> I got it figured out. I have a good system. Everybody I got should system. get on board. Come on. <laughs> Buy my mattress warmer. I figured it out. Don't worry. Um, okay, so I'm going to r- dramatically shift gears. I am so excited that Prince Harry is engaged. Do you like royals? I'm thrilled for them. Yes. I was so happy that that was at the top of the Twitter feed this morning. Yes. I was like, Just yes. Yay. A delightful Woo-hoo. detour from real life. Right? Okay. First of all, I love Prince Harry. I totally root for him. Um, I remember reading once that Princess Diana was like, he's the one everyone should go for. He won't have all the pressure and he's super more fun. And also he's a redhead. So kindred spirits. Um, he's engaged to Meghan Merkle, who's an American. Ooh, what? So excited about that part. And she is um, biracial, which is very exciting. Also mixing up the royal family diversity wise. Think that'll be great. Their wedding's going to be in the spring. I wonder how big of a, how much of like a big fancy royal wedding. Like part of me is like wants them to just be like flip the script and be like, we're not doing it that way. But also a bigger part of me wants a big old American princess royal wedding. That's amazing. It is pretty exciting. I mean, not even watch. I'm so happy for him. And also, you know, sometimes he struggles. He makes questionable decisions, particularly with. Um, Halloween costumes. But I feel like he's, like, very matured. He is, like, super, you know, he's into the Invictus games. He's very dedicated to his causes. I just love Prince Harry. I'm so happy for him. And she seems lovely. Yay. I'm so excited. Have babies. I want to watch it all. I'm so excited, guys. Go forth and prosper. I love royals. I do. I don't, I don't make any apologies about it. And clearly Facebook knows because I get all the, like, 30 things you didn't know about royal rules. I watch all the things. I watch The Crown. I watch Victoria. I'm all about it. I'm all about anything involving particularly the British royal family. Well, there's just something charming and escapist about the whole thing. It is. Especially if you take out kind of the ugly history of it and just look at it as what it is today. I mean, it's fun. Well, and listen, here there listen, I think it's it's not just escapist. I think that there is also such interesting conversations in particular about their their ugly history because so much of it was like playing out cultural um issues that we were all talking about. It's like celebrities, you know, celebrities are really just how we exercise these things. And I think the royal family's 
the also the same way. And so, like, I think that with Diana, talk about somebody who was, like, bridging a change in culture and approaches within the royal family. But, like, I've learned so much, particularly about, like, sort of the Diana history and th- rethinking through that from the the Crown show, which is so good, and about how, um, you know, I didn't realize how painful it was, that whole abdication thing with Wallace Simpson, the last um, American to marry a royal. So, so excited for Meghan Markle to sort of, like, let's move on from there. Because <laughs> she was crazy, side note. And... You know, that was really, really painful for them and protecting this institution, which they believe is important to British life and, of course, to their family and all these things. And how um, sort of the individualization, this is one of my favorite moments in The Crown, I think I've talked about before, where she says she wants to hire somebody out of the like uh, seniority ranks and the the head of the house is like, you know, individualization is where the rot gets in. This is what happened with your uncle, which I think I think about that quote all the time. And but I you see how that shaped her. I mean, she's just such a fascinating figure. I mean, again, talk about somebody whose life spans a massive amount of change going from like British colonial empire to Brexit. I mean, what the hell? Like, that's crazy. You know, I'm talking about Queen Elizabeth II, obviously. This has been a very eclectic mix of subject matter. Because <laughs> that's, what, that's what I love about them. They, they, you get so much swept up in the royal family. It's all so fascinating. I love it. Well, thank Sorry. you all for joining us for another, you know, diverse episode of Pants Politics in terms mm-hmm. of what we've mm-hmm. covered. Mm-hmm. And we'll be back with you for more on Friday. Looking forward to hearing from you between now and then. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George. You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Pantsuit Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Pantsuit Politics theme music.